Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Catechism. At BRCC, we believe that our catechism is a useful tool to help us understand and grow in our faith. But why? Find out in our series, Catechism. We are taking a few weeks going through a couple of catechism questions. They're ones that fit very well with what we were looking at at Christmas. And today we're going to be going through uh, looking at several passages of Scripture and talking about redemption through Christ the true human. So we're actually going to have three passages we're going to look at briefly today. They are in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21, and then Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 17. They are in the booklet there for you. Uh, they're also in the email that goes out with the uh, discussion guide, and they'll be up on the screen so you can follow along. But we're going to look at all of these to talk about why uh, the Redeemer has to be truly and fully human. And I again remind you each week we are still doing a devotion and discussion guide. But one great way you can study this is if you look at the Catechism of the Church online, we have what we call a study edition that's got pages of notes for every single question, including actually having some songs you can sing at the end uh, just to try and help the Word of God sink into our heart on these important uh, topics. So with that, let's go ahead and dive into God's Word. I encourage you, hear now the Word of your Creator and your Redeemer. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. In 1 Corinthians 15, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. And then in Hebrews chapter 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, so we obviously just went through Christmas, um, the, the whole Christmas season, and the two biggest holidays in the Christian calendar within Christian-influenced countries are Christmas and Easter. But it brings up a question, why do we even need Christmas? Very often, especially we evangelicals, will tend to focus so much on Easter, on Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, one might ask the question, why did Jesus even need to become human? Why is that necessary? And even if Je Jesus was human, why couldn't he just be born onto the cross and die on the cross and that be the beginning, the middle, and the end of it all? Why did we go through all of this stuff of 33 years of Jesus living as a human being prior to the cross? Is there any importance to his life? Well, I hope to help us see today there actually is importance to his life. We're looking at this in question 22 in our catechism, and we put it this way in the catechism. Why must the Redeemer be truly human? The Redeemer must be truly human so that he might fulfill humanity's obligations to God by completely obeying God's law and suffering and dying for human disobedience. So we're going to kind of unpack that. And the first part of it is that we have to have a truly human redeemer. So notice at the beginning of our 
answer here in this catechism. And again, a lot of these, and I go into the study edition, these aren't unique to us. These are based very heavily off of the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Catechism, New City Catechism, some others who are trying to stand in line with historic Christian orthodoxy. But we're trying to get to this point that the Redeemer has to be truly human. And so notice, he must be. It's not an option. It's not, well, there were six different ways this could have been done. The biblical logic is quite clear. No, the Redeemer must be human. And he must be truly human. The Redeemer can't simply appear to be human. He must actually be human in the fullest sense of the word. Now, I bring this up because in the early church, this was a debate that raged. There was a group known as the Gnostics. We see evidence of them even in the New Testament. Uh, I'm studying right now and getting ready for us the next book series we're going to go through, and starting in a few weeks is going to be 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, we can see that Timothy has been left in Ephesus to deal with the group, and that group is the beginnings of what later became known as Gnosticism. We see some of the same tendencies that are there. And there were many splinter groups within Gnosticism, but one of them uh, were a group known as the Docetus, which comes from a Greek word, dokeo, not important for you to remember the word, but it meant to appear. It's used all over the New Testament. It means one thinks something or something appears to be. And the Docetus were those who said, well, we know Jesus looked like a human, he talked like a human, he walked like a human, but he wasn't really human. He only appeared to be human because human flesh is disgusting and God can't have anything to do with the material world, so there's no way that God could have actually united himself with our flesh. So he only appeared to be human. We see elements of this in the New Testament. For example, this is one of the reasons that John in his prologue writes, the word became what? Flesh. See, John's, John's poking his finger in the eye of these early Gnostic groups saying, no, he didn't appear to be flesh. He actually became flesh. Nor did it it just happened later that God came upon a human. No, the Word was with God in the beginning. He created all things. He's fully God, but he became truly human. So the whole church rejected this idea of Jesus just appearing to be human and correctly stated that if Jesus only appeared to be human, then you only appear to be saved. Your, your salvation is only as real as his humanity. Your salvation is only as real and full as his humanity is real and full. Now, why do we say that? This is where we dig into our text. Notice all of these texts are bringing up, and we could bring many more up, but all of them are bringing up Jesus shared in our humanity, and he did this to redeem us. So in other words, Christmas is important. The incarnation is important. Notice in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, Paul's writing, and he's kind of concluding his early presentation of justification by faith alone. And at the end of Romans 5, he says, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, who's that one man? Adam. So Paul's saying, look, the problem started with one man, Adam. Our problem came about because of a human. And then he goes on and says, the many were made sinners. So you and I were constituted as sinners. This is original sin because of Adam's actions. And then notice he goes on and says, so also through the obedience of the one man. Uh, the many will be made righteous. So notice Paul saying, look, there's two men. There's Adam and there is Jesus. We're going to see in just a minute the second Adam. And the first Adam got us into the mess, and the only way out of the mess is a second Adam. And I remind us, this isn't true in Greek, but remember in Hebrew when God originally made man, the word for man is Adam. Adam, that name, just really meant human. 
It meant a man. That's what it was. It wasn't even specifically a male. It's just a human being. And it's actually a play on the word for dirt, which is Adama. It's just kind of dropping off the, the, the last consonant there. And God's saying, you're, you're dirt. That's what you are. You're dirt, and I breathed into you, and dirt became Adam. It became human. And so the very first human from which all others come, I named him that. And Paul says, it's that Adam, that man that came out of the dirt that got us into trouble, and only another Adam, only another human being can get us out of the trouble. Notice in 1 Corinthians 15, he brings it up this way. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. So notice that in Romans chapter 5, he's just dealing with how sin came, and it could have even been Jesus' earlier part of his life, but Paul's now saying, look, it was not just that trouble came, death came through Adam, and therefore the salvation is going to deal with death, and so it's going to be the resurrection of the dead that's going to come through a man. So Jesus has to come and be truly human, and he's going to have to enter into everything we're going to see, our life, our death, and our resurrection, because whatever he doesn't take into himself, we don't get. We already had death. We already had condemnation. We already had destruction. But if we want life, if we want to come through death and find resurrection, Paul says, death came through a man. Resurrection's going to have to come through a man. He, in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer to Hebrews, who I take to not be the Apostle Paul, so it's someone else that's writing these particular words, and he says this, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So notice, we have flesh and blood. He's dealing with not just our spirit, but our actual body. And he says that Jesus shares in that. He gets the same humanity that we have. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And then down in verse 17, he says, for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers, how much? In every way. Okay, this is, this is Noah appears to be human. And the good thing is this is written long before the Docetist actually came on the scene. But the writer to Hebrews is saying, look, Jesus shared in our humanity what we were, he took to himself, and he did it in every way. We're going to see there's one exception in just a minute, which are the very next words, the ellipsis there, uh, that he didn't take our sin. But he is like us in every way. So Jesus is human just like Adam is human. And as Creation was plunged into death through the act of a human. So the solution, the salvation, the redemption, resurrection from the dead comes through the act of a human. And all of this is why Jesus shared in our humanity because to destroy him who holds the power of death, he had to be made like us in every way. This is what is known as the doctrine of the second Adam or the last Adam. I mentioned this briefly, but notice there in 15, 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus, I mean, Paul is writing and dealing with resurrection. And the Gnostic, a, a, a kind of an incipient Gnostic group in Corinth is wanting to say the body doesn't matter, so the resurrection will be spiritual. And Paul says, no, if it's only spiritual, it's not resurrection and we have no hope. Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. There must be resurrection. It must be real resurrection. And in that chapter, he develops this idea of the second Adam. So notice in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, as we've already seen, since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. Later on in the chapter, he's talking about how the, the body that is planted is the body that is raised. It's like a seed. It comes up and it's different. It's glorified, but there's a continuity between them. And then he says in verses 45 and 47, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Remember, that's Genesis chapter 2. God scoops the dirt, the Adamah, and he breathes on it and says, Adam, you're a living being. But Paul goes on and says, the last Adam is a life-giving spirit. See, Adam's essence was he was dirt. 
And God had to breathe into him. But the last Adam's essence is he is a life-giving spirit. Notice a little bit of the play on words because what did Adam breathe into all of his descendants? Death. The second Adam breathes into his descendants, into his people, life. And see, there's kind of a picture here. you got to picture what Paul's saying with the gospel. What were you when Christ came to you? You were dead. You were laying there like Adam. That's what you and I were. And he breathed into us, and I became a living being. That's the picture that is going on here with the second Adam. Notice he continues in verse 47. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man was from heaven. Because Adam existed first as dirt, and then spirit came into him. Jesus existed from all eternity as God, and then came and took flesh to himself. So Paul's kind of doing a a little bit of a play here, trying to get our minds to expand, to think through what this means. So Jesus is the second Adam, the last Adam, but notice what he's doing is he's succeeding where Adam failed. Where Adam failed and gave death, Jesus succeeds and gives life. And so the key for every human being, when you look at 1 Corinthians 15 and when you look at Romans 5, the ultimate key is which Adam do you belong to? To which Adam do you belong? To which Adam do you attribute your identity? To which one of them is the source of your being? If it's the first Adam, then you are dust and to dust you're going to return. If it's the first Adam, your inheritance is death. But if it's the last Adam, the second Adam, then you are a living being. And if it is the last Adam, then you will come through death. You have already been given eternal life. And you can actually look this up. I won't take time this morning. But if you go to Hebrews chapter 2, the writer in Hebrews a little bit earlier is also dealt with Jesus as the second Adam. He quotes from Psalm 8 and says how uh, God made man so that all of creation would be under the, the control of humanity and we would be developing all of creation to the glory of God. And that's what we were going to do. And everything was under us. And he's pointing it out from Psalm 8 because that's even after the fall. That call is still there. But the writer to Hebrews says, but look around. It doesn't look like that's true. And then in verse 9 he says, but we see Jesus who became lower than the angels for a little while, and is now exalted, and is seated at the right hand of God, and is ruling and reigning all things. You see what he's saying is, the call that was given to Adam is still there. We read it in Psalm 8. Human beings have been failing miserably at it, but we see Jesus. And where we have failed, he has succeeded. And so he is fulfilling God's call for us. And this leads to what we're trying to develop then, that flowing out of that idea is that a redeemer has to be one who fulfills humanity's obligations to God. It's not a matter of just dying on the cross. We're going to see that's part of it. But there is a fulfillment of our obligations to God. So notice in the next part of the answer as we wrote it in the catechism, why does he have to be truly human? so that he might fulfill humanity's obligations to God. In other words, what we're getting at is, it's not like God made Adam and said, I have all these plans, and then Adam messed it up and poor God went over in the corner and sat down and said, well, I had this idea and it's all messed up now. No, there was a plan. There was a call, and that plan and that call are going to be fulfilled by humanity. And so, to do that because Adam failed, and how many of us fail? All of us, every one of us have failed. So the Redeemer has to be human so that he could do what Adam failed to do. Now, there are two parts to this that we have, which you can actually see up there in the thing. That means human beings, we owe God something because we are made in the image of God. See, everything is created by God, but what God expects out of the wood that this table up here is made out of and what he expects out of you are two very different things. Because to whom much is given, much is required. And we alone 
are created in the image of God and given the capacity to accomplish what God has laid upon humanity to do, to bear the image of God, to walk in the character of God, to rule over creation, not crushing it, but protecting it, developing it, bringing out its potential under God uh, so that uh, it can bring all the glory to God that it was created to do. So we owe that to God, but we have another problem. And that problem is we have an obligation to God because we broke his law. And so the Redeemer has to do two things. Number one, he has to obey God's law perfectly, which is what Adam failed to do. And number two, he has to suffer and die for human disobedience. Because when we broke the law of God, what did God tell us was the punishment for breaking his law? Death. Okay, that's why Paul says, so when Adam did it, death is passed on to every one of us. So let's look at the two aspects here. First, the Redeemer has to completely obey the law of God. So the first part of our obligation is completely obeying God's law. Again, we're created in the image of God, and therefore we are created to fulfill God's law completely and perfectly. And it was the call God gave to Adam And it comes to every single human being. To draw your nature from Adam, which we all do, is to bring along with it the requirement, the call, that we are to obey God's law perfectly. And so the Redeemer comes, this is where this idea of the second Adam is so important, he comes to do what Adam failed to do, to completely and perfectly obey God. And so notice in Romans 5 how Paul breaks it out here. Romans 5, 19, this is part of our text. He says, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So Adam's uh, disobedience leads to us, the, the actual Greek word there is to be appointed as, to be accounted as. It is, kathistemi uh, is the word. It means that we've been appointed as sinners, and Christ's obedience leads to us being appointed as being righteous. It's not that I perfectly keep the law of God. How many of us are going to break God's law today? Every one of us are going to break God's law today. Even when we're trying not to, we sin in thought, word, and deed. But we are appointed as being righteous because of what Christ has done for us. Now, this certainly includes Christ's obedience to going to the cross, but I want you to see the one act that he's talking about here isn't just the cross, it's the one act of Jesus' entire life, which culminates in him going to the cross, but it is an entire life of obedience to God. And so the answer is no, Jesus can't just be incarnated on the cross because we didn't just owe God for what we had done wrong. We owe him full obedience. And so if you notice in Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 4, We read about Jesus and his humanity and why the humanity is so important. And notice the terms. In Hebrews 2.17, we're told he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Now what the writer is getting at there is our full humanity, and that includes the fact that to be human means we are susceptible to temptation. God cannot be tempted, we are assured in the scripture. Evil cannot even tempt him. But human beings, even unfallen human beings, can be tempted. How do we know that? Because Adam got tempted, right? Adam and Eve. There were two of them in the garden that, had, that were unfallen, and they both got tempted, and they both failed. Now, it's to Adam that, uh, that the blame is credited and comes down to us. But So the writer's talking not just about his constitution as human, but also that he's made like us in the fact that he is tempted. And we know this because as he develops his argument, he comes down to Hebrews chapter 4 and he says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in how many ways? Every way. What you're facing, he has faced. He has plummeted us. He's been tempted in us in every way, just as we are 
hyphen, and then the really important phrase, but what? Yet without sin. So Jesus comes, is made like us in every way. He's truly human. He is tempted like us. This is part of him going through the test that Adam had failed, that Eve had also failed, uh, but it's credited to Adam. And Jesus passes that test. But note this, he doesn't do it for a day or a two days in the garden. I want you to know, I mean, think of some of the differences. The deck is stacked, actually, in a sense, against Christ's obedience. Adam is in a garden, in a perfect world, where there are no effects of sin. Everything he needs is there. The uh, Satan comes and tempts him, and Adam folds like a house of cards. Jesus, on the other hand, is driven into the wilderness. There's no food. He's lacking water. He's hungry. It's been 40 days. At that moment, the enemy comes and tempts him. And if you look back with basically the same temptations as Adam and Eve seeing the food and it's desirable to gain wisdom and all the things, all of that is presented to Jesus. And what does he do? He stands. And in fact, what's amazing is, of course, Satan distorts the word of God to Adam and Eve because we're told Adam's actually standing right there with Eve. They do not correct him. They do not quote the word of God. Jesus in the wilderness, every time the serpent tempts him, what does he do? It is written. It is written. Adam had every reason to obey. The second Adam is in the worst of circumstances, but he obeys. And he does it perfectly. It's not just the cross. It's an entire life of obedience. And we'll see in a couple of minutes why this is so important. Because the lifelong obedience of Jesus means he has fulfilled God's law in our place. And he has perfect righteousness to give to who? Me. You. See, this is where it comes home and it's so important. Your position and mine is not just that our sins have been forgiven. It's actually that we have been credited, we have been given, we have been accounted as being perfectly righteous because of what Jesus has done in our place. That's what it means to have a redeemer. That is a good position because no matter what your sin has been today or mine, when you stand before a holy God, you stand there not neutral, not just having your sins paid, you stand there and I stand there completely righteous. As if I had obeyed God's law with my every word, my every thought, my every deed, my every attitude for all of my life. Now that's a position to be in before God. And that is what redemption means. This is why Christmas is a big deal. It really, really is that God has become man because apart from him taking our flesh, there is no salvation. But there's a second part to it, which is the Redeemer has to suffer and die for human sin. So as we say, he suffers and dies for human disobedience because humans, every one of us, have sinned and broken God's law. Everyone, every human being, every one of us here has earned, if you're taking notes, put, put earned in capital letters, bold, underlined. It's not just that we kind of inadvertently did it. You and I have been laboring hard to earn punishment. We, we, have, we have worked. And, and lest we think you know, that, I'm, that I'm making this up, you remember there, there's a famous verse many of us know, the wages of sin is what? Who gets wages? Well, in a normal economy. Sometimes in ours, we kind of just give things away for nothing. But that's a whole separate point. Wages are what I work for. So Paul's telling us, am I just somehow getting death even though it's like I tried to avoid it? Oh, no. I worked for it. I labored to get this. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. I labored in my thoughts. 
I labored in my words. I labored in my attitudes. I labored in my actions. That is what is owed to us. And make no mistake, that debt must be paid. The debt to God must be paid or there can be no salvation. And that debt is death. Not just Romans 6.23, but again, notice our text. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 21. For since death came through a man. Remember, God told Adam, if you eat, you think it's going to be life. You think it's going to be elevation. You're being told it's going to make you God. You're as much like God as a creature could possibly be. But I'm telling you, if you eat, you will die. That's what's going to happen. Hebrews chapter 2 in our text. Notice Jesus took our humanity, shared in our humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. See, the problem we have is death. Our culture right now is working overtime to try and convince you and I to give a hundred different things that are the locus of your problem. They are not. Your problem and my problem is the same problem that every human being has, which is death. And that death came through a man. It's not bad circumstances. It's humans choosing to rebel against God and then receiving death. And therefore, the solution must also come through a man, the second Adam, Jesus. And so this is why Jesus suffered, suffered and died, not to pay for his sins, but to pay for ours. So in his life, he's worked righteousness for us, and in his death, he has paid for our sin and what we owe. So how do we apply this, and we'll come to the Lord's table? This is a very important thing for us to grasp. Do we, do we see that or what Jesus as the second Adam teaches me about humanity? Now, this is important to think of for just a second because sometimes what we say is, you know, to be human is to be sinful. That's not true. Sin is not essential to who you are and who I am. Now, when I'm being tempted, does it feel essential? Yes, it feels like it's the very essence of who I am, my identity. But see, Jesus, as the second Adam, is truly human. So, And yet, he's without sin. So sin is not part of who we are. It is a later add-on to who we are. And so this has a number of huge implications for us, and we're going to put them up here on the screen. And I want you to see these. I'll kind of work through these quickly, but I want you to think of what that means. Number one, it means Adam's rebellion to God is going to be overcome through the second Adam. It's not by me gritting down, bearing down on it or whatever else. It's going to be done through the second Adam. My problem has come from the first Adam. My solution is going to come from the second Adam. Secondly, this means God's plan for us is still on track. You and I, you know, the, the way I am, I'm, I'm rather, uh, you know, what Freud would call anal retentive or whatever. I, I usually have backup plans to backup plans. Okay, that's the way I work. I remember we're coming up on uh, uh, January the 20th is the anniversary of my first date with Linda and we actually got engaged in March. Yes, it was a very short courtship. And I had planned to take her out at the Naval Academy. We were going to go down to, to uh, the light down there, the, the submarine light. There's a green light right at the edge of the, the bay in the Severn. And I thought it was going to be a very romantic spot, except for the weather was somewhat like it's supposed to be this evening. It was sleeting and snowing. But I was like, no problem. This Marine has a backup plan. And my backup plan was we were going to go upstairs. We were going to go into Memorial Hall where we could look out over it all. It was going to be nice and warm. And Memorial Hall is never used except on that night. There were about 500 midshipmen in Memorial Hall. And I was like, okay, that was plan B. And I looked at her and I said, 
I don't have a plan C. <laughs> I didn't go that deep in my redundancy, so it's a little Protestant chapel, and I was pretty nervous anyway because I was proposing to her. So, you know, I'm the kind of guy that likes to try and come with a backup plan. Most of us do backup plans. You know who doesn't have a backup plan? God, because if you're God, you don't need a backup plan. You decide what's going to happen, and it can happen. See, if I were God, I could have said, beautiful night. <laughs> you know, I could have had angels singing there, you know, as I was kneeling down to propose to Linda. I had no power to affect any of that, so I needed a backup plan. I could have banished all the midshipmen from Memorial Hall. I had no power to affect that, so I ended up in a sad little room off on the side somewhere, okay? If you're God, you don't need a backup plan. And the second Adam tells us he's not operating off of a backup plan. What he decreed that humanity was going to do is going to be done. No matter how bad Adam messed it up, the second Adam can fix this. Third thing that we learn is that sin's not essential to us, as I was saying just a minute ago. It doesn't define who I am. So when I'm facing temptation, there's a lot of talk today about identity. And my identity is this and my identity is that. The, the identity of a human being is the image of God, and then for a Christian is a redeemed image of God. That's our identity. And finding my identity in anything else is the wrong place to seat my identity. And that especially comes when that thing is something that the Scripture identifies as sin. And here's the reality that, that people don't get. It's like, you don't understand how deep this feels. Oh yeah, I do. I'm a sinner. I, I know exactly how deep sin feels. But I know it's not actually the core of my being. It's not essential to who I am. Jesus' humanity tells us this. And so that means for me as well, humanity is not my problem. Sometimes we act like, you know, being a human. No, humanity is not my problem. That means my flesh and blood is not my problem. What is my problem? Sin. That's my problem. And it's not essential to who I am. It's not essential to my spirit. It's not essential to my body. Because Jesus took our full humanity to himself and did it without sin. So whatever you and I are, from whatever aspect we're looking at it, sin is not essential to who we are. Uh, it is our problem, but there is deliverance from that. And so, and then the last point that I'd bring out is redemption, therefore, is not an escape from humanity, but the beginning of the restoration of true humanity. And this is important as a young believer sometimes because I didn't understand these things that I'm trying to lay out for us today. I thought the more spiritual I became, in essence, the less human I became. That's not God's goal. The, uh, one of the early church fathers said, you know, the glory of God is a human fully alive. That's what God's after. He's not trying to get rid of my humanity. And in Christ, he's giving us the chance to put our humanity back on track. And so as believers, we should be open. However uniquely God has wired you or me together, whatever things he's working and doing, know that our redemption is trying to set that up. And God's saying for the first time, you can actually be who I made you to be. Because prior to redemption, sin is always distorting. It is always stealing. It is always killing. It is always distorting. It's always messing everything up. But Christ is saying, I'm here to start beginning to set things right. And I didn't put it on the screen here, but folks, this is what all of eternity is going to be. You're not going to be less human in eternity, nor am I. We're going to finally, we're going to wake up on that day, on resurrection morning, when we are, our bodies are raised and we are fully human before God. For the first time, we're going to say, this is what I was meant to be. This is it. This is the glory of God. I am fully, truly alive for the first time. And that's what Christ has done for us. Now, last thing, and then we come to the table with this. Do I understand? All of those are kind of philosophical and theological, but they're really important because they help you and I live. 
when we give in to bad theology, bad philosophy, it affects how you're going to respond to temptation this week, and me too, and how I'm going to live my life. But let me get real practical for us. Do I understand my standing as a result of the work of Christ, my Redeemer? Every sin you have done, every sin you're going to do, the debt has been paid. Not kind of paid, not three quarters paid, not 99% you do the last, paid in full. God is not... As a child of God, he is not pouring wrath out on you, even for your sin. He may discipline you and me because he loves us as his children. Hebrews 12 tells us that. But it is never to say, you sinned, I'm getting you. Because the son has already paid for it all. We're going to come in a couple of weeks. This is part of why he has to be divine. Because that's a steep bill. It's a steep bill, but he has paid it. But not only has he done that and cleansed me so that I'm at the start line, he's put me to the finish line. He's given me full, perfect righteousness. I don't just stand there cleansed of my sin. I stand there perfectly, fully righteous. He who had no sin became sin for us so that I might be neutral before God. Is that what Paul says? So that in him I might become what? The righteousness of God. And there's one righteousness that will always satisfy God, and that's the righteousness of God, which is given to us in Christ Jesus. He's taken our sin. He's given us his righteousness. And it's not something to be achieved It is what it means to be justified. A a later question in our catechism asks what justification is. (coughs) And so often, Christians quip and say, justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. And I say, it's just as if you got half of the definition. Because justification is the gracious act of God in which he declares that we are totally righteous, as if we had never sinned, and as if we had positively obeyed all of God's law perfectly. Not just that I didn't sin, but I've been positively obedient. If Think about it if you're a parent. You know, it's not enough when the kid says, you know, well, I didn't positively break your command. Did, did you do what I asked? Well, I didn't break your command. I mean, True obedience is not just avoiding the negative, it's actually embracing the positive. And justification says we're accounted as having done both. So friends, this gives us freedom and boldness. You you are utterly accepted by God. You do not come into God kind of cringing, being there. I'm only a halfway citizen. I'm not sure, you know, I'm one of God's favorites. I think he kind of doesn't like, no. You come before God perfectly cleansed, perfectly covered in righteousness, and he views you as he does Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul tells us you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That whatever Christ is going to inherit, which is what? Everything is yours. That's the status we have before God. So what that does is it frees me up. When I sin, I need not hide, I need not lie. I I can come before God and say I sin because I know who I am in Christ. I can open up to God knowing that God loves me and will work in with God and through me. Sanctification is a rocky process. There's good weeks, there's bad weeks. There's good days, there's bad days. There's good areas and bad areas. But I am accepted in Christ. That is the the foundation on which I can build. So I want to encourage you this week, meditate deeply on your status in Christ. Too many Christians I know 
struggle and guilt is there. And there's all of this other stuff. And that is such a shame because the gospel, remember the angels came and said, I bring you what? I bring you gospel. I bring you good news of great joy. Christ is born. That is good news. Our Redeemer being truly and fully human is good news. So we're going to come now to the table. And this table um, is a table of full acceptance before God. And so I want us to come today knowing apart from Christ, our Redeemer, you and I would have no right. In Christ, our Redeemer, I want us to think in terms of the word in Hebrews chapter 4. We are to come how before the throne of grace? Boldly. So we come to this table boldly. Not because I have the right, but because that's my status in Christ that I come before him. So hear the words of invitation. In Romans chapter 5, verse 17, right before our text from today, the Apostle Paul says, For if by the trespass of the one man... Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive the, God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Friends, how much more? The second to Adam is greater than the first. And whatever sin we've inherited, whatever we struggle with, God has given an abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness. If you are in Christ Jesus, I encourage you to come today and to receive from the Lord. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from it, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we pray now as the people of the second Adam of Jesus Christ, send your Holy Spirit and minister to us here at your table of grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you go ahead and take the bread out. Lord, we freely confess that in our bodies we have worked unrighteousness and sin. In Adam's sin, we too fell, and we have followed his rebellious path by our own will. For this reason, we need a second Adam one who will choose obedience rather than rebellion, fully keeping the will of God and thus fulfilling our call as your image bearers. And we give you thanks that our Lord Jesus is the second Adam, that he fully obeyed in our place and that his righteousness is given to us as his people. And as we take this bread, which is a participation in the body of Christ, we give you thanks for Jesus' incarnation, his sinless life in our place, and the gift of his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, we freely confess that the wages due for our sin is death, and that we have labored to earn this by our sinful thoughts, words, and deeds. But we give you thanks that you took the death that we were due, pouring out your sinless, spotless blood that we might be fully forgiven and cleansed. And we take this cup that is a participation in the blood of Christ. We give you thanks for your atoning death, bearing the wrath that we were due, that we might inherit eternal life 
and full blessings. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together, and I encourage you to cry out for God to meet you in his power. O Holy Trinity, how great are your plans, and how great is the love you have shown us. You have made us in your image, breathing into us the very breath of life, and sustaining us moment by moment by your Spirit. You redeemed us in Jesus our Lord, freeing us from sin and shame and death and giving us every covenant blessing. And you dwell in us by your Spirit, giving us your gifts, leading and guiding us in your paths each day. And Lord, what an inheritance awaits us. For even death itself will not be able to separate us from your love. Lord, we ask that this week we may live in light of the great salvation we have in Christ our Lord. And we pray that we would spread the good news to others so that they too may share in all that he has done for us as the second Adam. We ask all of this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. And God's people say, amen. Now grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be the glory now and forevermore. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.